I get to it, um, we have one of our brothers. Where are you, Johnny? There you are. We have short testimony here. Hello? Okay. Um, I just want to, sh- this is just a testimony for, um, I guess specifically, I mean, it could be applied to everyone, but especially for graduating seniors, juniors too. But um, back in December, I felt like the Lord was putting on my heart to stay in Santa Barbara. I'm a gra- fourth year at UC Santa Barbara. And um, I just felt like the Lord was putting on my heart to stay um, for another year um, just to sow into the land and just to just stay there, just out of obedience. And so I, like, I gave him my yes, and then maybe like a month later, no, it was actually like during December too, I reached out to um, my, the church that I have up there, and they have like a community house. It's called the Jesus Burgers House. And then um, I told them, they asked me like if I want to pray about it, and then after I felt the Lord saying like yes, I told them yes. And then like that January what, during winter quarter, I like signed the lease but, like, I signed the lease, like, not having any job or, like, not having anything. Like, it was just purely in faith, like, that the Lord would provide. And, like, back then in January, it was, like, really easy to sign the lease. I'm like, yeah, sure, like, God's going to provide. And then um, maybe in March, I started applying to jobs in Santa Barbara. And, like, man, I applied to literally, like, th- like 300-something jobs, something like that. And, like, every time I keep getting the, like, we're fortunate to, like, we're going to be moving on a different position. And, like, I, I just, like... Over time, in the beginning, like March, April was okay, uh, but as I progressed, you know, to May, I was like, okay, God, you know, like, I'm moving into July, like, you know, <laughs> you got to, like, show me, like, provide in whatever way, and then long story short, you know, I got, at the end of it, after however many applications, I got, like, two interviews, and then I did one interview, and, like, I thought I did really good, and then they were, like, we're going to be moving on, and I was like, oh, shoot, and I only had one interview left um, with this one company, but this was probably like the best company or one that I wanted to be with the most. And I was just like really like, okay, Lord, this I really need this one. And then I just surrendered it to the Lord. I was like, Lord, even if I don't get this company, like I'll work at like McDonald's or like I'll work somewhere like just wherever, you know, like it's not about the job. Like I just believe you'll provide in some way. Um, so I did the interview, all that stuff. And then last week they reached out to me and like they called me in the morning and like I was just in bed still. So my voice was still groggy and I was just like, oh shoot, like this is the person, this is the recruiter's number. And so I was like, ah, like, hi, it's John just speaking. And then they basically said, like, we, lo- you know, we'd love to have you and bring you on. But the the encouraging part about this isn't the fact that I got a job, but it's because I remember that there was a friend. Um, he graduated two years ago. His name's Moses, and um, this, he's like a man of God. And I reached out to him, like, hey, like, I heard you're working at this company. He's like, yeah, I still work there. And I was like, bro, let's meet up during lunch. Let's like pray and like just talk about Jesus. And he was like, dude, I've been praying for like um, another person to like come work with us so now when I start working I'm already going to have someone to just like run with in that context so I just want to say like you know just for the seniors like honestly applying to jobs and all that stuff like it's a hassle and like believing that God will provide like I've been there like I've been worrying I've been to the process of worrying and all that stuff so I just want to say like God will always reward you if you have faith like nothing's impossible for him and like something as small as like providing a job in the grand scheme like he could totally do that and, like, I've never had, I haven't had one regret, like, living a life, like, just devoted in faith. Like, just signing the lease, having nothing, like, it's so worth it. So, just for people who, you know, you're applying or you don't know what's going to happen, like, God will provide as long as you walk in faith. So, don't, don't set up your own backup plans. Don't set up your own options. Just do what the Lord calls you to do, and he'll, he'll guide you from there. So, yeah. Thanks, man. All right. 
All right, let's open up our Bibles to the book of Galatians. We are in a series going through the book of Galatians. We did chapter 1 um, two weeks ago. Well, we did the first part of chapter 1, and then last week we did Acts 10. Um, I'm going to be interweaving the book of Acts with um, the book of Galatians. That's because Paul is referencing stuff that happens in the book of Acts. So if you're not familiar with it, you won't really know what he's talking about. So today we're going to get back into Acts a little bit. Um, but I want to remind us, I am belaboring this point about why, it, why is the book of Galatians important and this controversy in the early church, okay? This was the controversy that defined the early church. In fact, many books of the New Testament are talking about this controversy. And when we don't understand the controversy itself, what the nature of it was, then what happens is we invent all kinds of new meanings for it. And the reason why I'm talking about this is because there's still so much misunderstanding about this idea. Is it faith or works? Right? Is it faith or works? In coming out of the Reformation, Martin Luther taught that it's all about faith, and we're not saved by any of our righteous deeds. Now, is that true? Well, yes, that's, that's true, but that's not what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about works of the law. He's saying that we don't need to become Jews, but this understanding is largely lost on the Western church, which is why when we read a number of the books of the New Testament, they don't make a lot of sense to us. So I want us to understand the New Testament so we have to understand this controversy and we can pull out lots of good information from it. So we're going to be digging into the scriptures, which I love. Oh, that we would love the scriptures. Oh, that the church would love the scriptures. I forget. I think Charles Spurgeon said something. I can find a hundred Christians who will die for Christ for every Christian that will actually read the Bible. Right? He said something like that. And it's true. It's hard for modern-day Christians especially, now that we've got apps and video games and Netflix and a million other things, it's so hard to just read Scripture and appreciate it and love it. And can I tell you, that's why there's so much confusion. There's so many people who don't have deep, strong relationships with God because they don't have deep personal convictions from Scripture. Okay? This is what the scriptures themselves talk about again and again. The one who meditates on the word of the Lord day and night is the one like a tree planted by streams of water that's not shaken, its leaf doesn't wither, prospers in all that it does, and it will be found righteous at the judgment. All of this has to do with do we love the word of God? Have we wrestled with it? And the way I always say it is like this. You should be wrestling with the scriptures. It should not all make sense to you. If everything God tells you to do is like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I was going to do that anyway. All right. Then newsflash. It's not really, you know, worshiping the God of your mind. Right. Because the reality is the whole point of trust, the whole point of trusting him in obedience is because we're not going to understand why he commands us to do things all the time. That's the nature of this. Right. My kids have to trust me and obey. Brush your teeth. Why? Why? It's fine. I don't brush my teeth. I'm fine. Right? Nothing happens. Yet, right, they don't understand what happens over time. It's hard to get wisdom like this yourself. You know, if there weren't parents telling their kids to brush their teeth, how many kids do you think would brush their teeth? 
None of them, right? None of them would do it. You need to get wisdom from people who have more wisdom than you, and that's what the scriptures are. They're wisdom given to us as a puzzle, okay? They're given to us as a puzzle, as a riddle, as a mystery. It's intentionally difficult. It's intentionally not easy because the scriptures themselves are a test for our hearts. A lot of people don't understand this. They go, well, it's just too difficult, so whatever. And so what happens is a lot of people just rely on what their pastors or what their teachers or Bible study leaders tell them. And can I tell you, that's a good thing when you're a child. Okay, when you are a kid, that's wonderful. Trust your teachers and Bible study leaders and all of that. That's really good. But I have another news flash for you. You ain't a child no more. You're an adult. Time for you to grow up. And what that means in this context is that you need to get your own convictions from the scriptures. You need to wrestle it with yourself. You need to disagree with people like me sometimes in a respectful way, okay, until you can see it for yourself in the scriptures, right? That's a healthy thing. Paul talks about when he um, preached to the Bereans, they didn't take what he said and just received it, they searched the scriptures. They wrestled with what he said. And when they found when they found in the scriptures themselves confirmation of his teachings, then they said, okay, we've searched the scriptures and we know that it's true. So I say that to say, I invite you to wrestle with me. I love it. I love it when students go, Pastor Dennis, I think you're wrong about this. Ooh, that gets me excited. I go, okay, it's time to teach you a good lesson. Right? And that's fun for me. I enjoy that. And that's fine. We can do that in fun. Most of my friends, if you put any two pastors in a room together, you know what? We're going to disagree on some minor doctrine stuff. That's fine. Disagreements are fine. They should not threaten us, okay? The worst thing is when you can only fellowship with people that you agree on in every single point of doctrine. Man, you can be by yourself worshiping Jesus in your room, all right? Now, the truth is that we are going to have disagreements on minor doctrine. That's fine, okay? All I ask is that for you, that you wrestle with the scriptures themselves. Amen? All right, Galatians chapter 1. We're going to go down to verse 11. It says this. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Pause. Okay, this is Paul's thesis for this whole section. He's saying, look. I didn't get, what I taught to you guys wasn't something that I heard from Peter and James and those other super apostle guys, okay? Jesus came to me and spoke it directly to me himself. That's what I'm giving you, okay? So this is not, I didn't like study the scriptures and be like, hmm, that makes sense. And what, what What if it went like this? No, no, no. That's not the nature of Paul's revelation. He's saying, look, what I was given is unique, okay? This is what makes me an apostle. An apostle is somebody who has to have seen the risen Lord in the flesh. Okay? So don't believe anybody who calls himself an apostle and has not seen the risen Lord in the flesh. you got to see him. you got to be a witness of his resurrection. That's one of the criteria. Okay? So Paul's saying, I've seen Jesus in the flesh. He walked into the room. I talked with him. And he told me this. And this is what I gave to you guys. Now, how is that different? Because now these other guys are coming and saying, hey, you know what Paul told you is not quite right. Paul's got good intentions. He's a good guy. 
But look, this is the way it's worked for thousands of years. This is what Moses taught us. If we're going to be people of God, we must be circumcised, and we must follow the 613 commands of the Mosaic law. You have to do that. That's what it means to be a person of God. To be a Jew was to be a member of the people of God. And Paul's out here teaching, no, no, no. You can be a member of the people of God without following the law of Moses. And that, this is unthinkable. This is unthinkable to first century Jews. They're like, no, this is insane. But we read last week about how God gave that vision to Peter. Right? He got this vision, didn't understand it. And it blew all their minds. Well, guess what? Paul got the exact same revelation personally. Does this make sense? That's what Paul's saying here. Verse 13. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism. How intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. Pause. Okay, you know, I got to address the Calvinistic implication to this verse. Okay? Always got to. All right, look. Guess what? Some people are called from the womb, have callings given to them. We see Jeremiah. Jeremiah also talks about how God chose him in his mother's womb and set him apart as a prophet to the nations. Well, guess what? Paul has the same calling. I have a mean newsflash for you. Most of us do not have that same calling. Sad newsflash, okay? But the truth is, what many teach is that this applies to all of us, that all of us are set apart in our mother's wombs and are called. And can I just say, I really don't think that's what Paul's saying here. Because the entire context of this passage is about how his call and message is unique to him. And why other people who do not have that call and that revelation from Jesus cannot speak with the same authority that he speaks with. Does this make sense? That's the entire point of this section of scripture. So I don't like how Many people in a certain camp of theology will take these examples of Scripture and say, oh, that must mean all Christians. It works like this for all Christians. No, that goes against his entire point. His entire point is that I have been given a special revelation, and I hold a special place of authority in the kingdom. And the point is that you do not have that place of authority, and so I am right, and they are wrong. That's Paul's message here. Was that good enough? Amen. Verse 17, he says this, I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that I am writing, what I am writing to you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy and they praise God because of me pause right here Paul's point in this whole his whole message here is he's saying look I promise you nobody taught me this stuff I promise you I didn't see those apostles I barely talked to them this is what happened he's going to explain in the next chapter which we're going to get into a little bit when he got saved and those of you guys who know the story Paul used to be named Saul he hated 
Christ. He hated the followers of Christ, and he persecuted them actively. He's on his way to Damascus, and on the road to Damascus, a bright light comes out of nowhere and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus of Nazareth, who you are persecuting. And he goes, oh my goodness, I have made a mistake. And this is Saul's story. This is his testimony that he's sharing. After this, Paul says he's going to go to Arabia. He's going to go to Arabia. He's going to be alone with God. And he's going to wrestle through this revelation for years. In fact, he's not going to get into public ministry for a minimum of at least 10 years. It was probably a bit more than that, 14 or 15 years. But Paul is giving us all of this understanding so that we don't think that his message is a nice message. That's his point. This is not a nice message. This is not something I reasoned out, okay? I saw with my own eyes Jesus alive and well, the one who was crucified, the one who was killed in front of everyone. I saw him, and I have been sent by him. I have an apostolic calling and an apostolic message. And brothers and sisters, this is the heart of of the gospel. The gospel is the news that Jesus has been raised from the dead as evidence that he's not an ordinary person. He's not a nice teacher. He's not a good philosopher. No, he is the one sent by the Father to be the mediator between man and God. He is unique in all of human history. All of history revolves around this person of Jesus. And Paul is saying, this Jesus sent me. Does this make sense? Why is this important? Brothers and sisters, without this type of revelation, the church cannot overcome. What am I saying right now? I'm saying this. Right now, our churches, our seminaries are led primarily by teachers, pastors, and evangelists. You can tell who leads a church by the culture of the church. I'll tell you, Pastor Kim, who was our previous senior pastor, that dude was a teacher. He loved teaching. Every pastor's meeting, he's teaching, 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 teaching. Right, What he honored was teaching, good teaching. If you could teach well, you could be a pastor here. You could be a leader here. That's very common. Teachers lead many churches. Many churches are led by pastors. In churches led by pastors, oftentimes it's very homey. Like you feel really comfortable. You're welcomed in. It's like, wow, people are so loving here. Right? I feel like my, my leaders really love me and they really care for me. That's that pastoral anointing. It's really good. Sometimes you could see a church that's very evangelistic, led by an evangelist, Right? all about reaching the lost. They're like, man, you guys don't evangelize? Are you even Christian? Right? That's how they feel because their heart is constantly for the lost. Now, I want to say this. All three of those offices, Paul talks about these in Ephesians chapter 4, the five-fold ministry. All three of them are important and good. We need all of those kinds of leaders in the church. The purpose of the five-fold ministry is to equip the saints for the work of service. All of us are supposed to be equipped by the evangelists, equipped by the pastors, equipped by the teachers. But can I say something? Apostles are deeply dishonored in the church today. Prophets are deeply dishonored in the church today. Prophets are weird. Okay? Prophets are really weird. You guys ever seen some real prophets? They are weird people. Okay? Man, 
All right, I'll tell you just one story. Okay. This is, this is a secondhand knowledge because I, I wasn't there that day. But you guys, some of you guys heard the Trump prophecy, right? Kim Clement. Okay. Kim Clement prophesied, this was before, you know, years ago, 2007 or something like that. Trump would become the trumpet, right? And that a man of God would come to the office whispering the name of God. And he would leave shouting it, right? He would become a, a man of faith. And so we're believing for Donald Trump that this is a word about him. Um, Kim Clement, there's a story. He visited um, my old church in Oakland, um, Shiloh Christian Fellowship. And he um, called out this woman in the audience. And he said, you're married. And everybody was like, ooh, false prophet. Because they all knew her. And she was not married. And she's like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not married, right? And he's like, yes, you are. And everybody was like, well, okay, what's happening? This is weird, right? He said, you're married to the devil, right? And everybody was like, oh. My spiritual mom was there. She told me when it happened, everybody in the room went, oh. <laughs> right? The entire room gasped at once, right? It's just a really unbelievable thing to say to somebody. And he said, and you've come here tonight to kill me, and you have a knife in your bag. And they looked in her bag, and she had a giant butcher's knife in her bag, and she started breaking down and weeping, right? And her life was changed, right? This is, what, this is what's happened. I encourage you, you need to read about all the stories like this. Jack Deere was a professor at um, Dallas Theological Seminary. For those of you who know, Dallas Theological Seminary is a very prominent seminary in Dallas, um, and it's strongly cessationist, meaning they don't believe in the gifts of the Spirit or miracles today and stuff like that. And anyway, Jack Deere went to Kansas City because he heard that there were prophets there. And a man named Paul Cain prophesied over him. And the way we say it in the charismatic movement is he read his mail, right? Reading your mail is like he tells you all these things about your life that you would only know if you knew that person really well. He told him all these things about him. And, his, and he realized, okay, all of my theology has a big problem with it right now, right? This is a professor, a very um, prestigious professor at a seminary. And he realized he was dead wrong, and he had to change all of his theology. Because this is what happens when we don't experience the power of God. We don't see miracles. When we don't see these things, we develop theology to explain the reason why we don't see these things. Can I tell you why the scripture says you don't see it? It says because your faith is small. Now, we don't like that. Because, like, your faith is small, right? No, how about some humility? How about our faith is small, Right? When, somebody, when I pray for somebody and that person doesn't get healed, I don't blame them that their faith is small. Is that part of the reason? Yes. Okay? But you know what the bigger part of the reason is? My faith is small. Okay? It's always the combined faith. And so I, I, I say that because we need to have humility. We have not experienced enough of this stuff. At our last retreat, many of us were blessed to be able to see a number of people got miraculously healed at our last retreat. Right? That's a very, that's a good thing. We need to see those types of things because we have have a paradigm that believes in the power of God. When we stop believing in the power of God, you stop experiencing it because these things happen by faith. Faith is the mechanism that unleashes the power of God over our lives. When people go, God, how come it doesn't seem like you move in my life? I'll tell you, your faith is too small. That's why. That's not me. That's the Bible saying it over and over and over again. When Jesus encounters and heals people, he says, your faith has made you well. This is something that we don't like talking about because we Westerners, we want to explain rationally why things are the way that they are. But no, can I tell you, from the biblical perspective, the supernatural should be normal. The fact that it's not normal 
means that there's a problem with us. And I say this lovingly. One of the major problems in the Western church is we do not honor apostles. And a, a, Look, miraculous grace is largely tied to apostles all throughout Scripture. Okay? We have to start honoring the apostolic. Now, that's an entire branch of theology that I cannot begin to, come to get into deep today. But I will say this just as a primer. The same argument, people say apostles have passed away, that there's, you know, that we don't have them anymore. And I say lovingly, that's the same argument that people use to say why we don't have gifts of healing, why we don't have prophecy, and I have just seen way too much of it to agree with you on that, okay? And the Bible, I think, is pretty clear that the gifts are still for today. There's nothing that says that apostles have passed away or that prophets have passed away. No, the only thing that's changed is our theology to explain why we don't see these things. And so I say this lovingly, church, we need to pray that God would give us grace to see apostles and prophets take their rightful place in the church again. This is important. It's important that we have the body functioning in the way that it's supposed to function. And here's the thing. Why are they so dishonored? Because we don't hunger for the supernatural. That's why. We don't hunger for the supernatural. But can I tell you something? God is not like us. He's not like us. He's different. He's holy. And so he doesn't make himself as palatable as possible for us. He reaches out to us. He calls to us. He invites us. He beckons us. But church, it's our hunger and our drive that leads us into greater revelation. That's how this works. Don't blame God. God, how could it seem like you don't move in my life? I love you say this because your faith is too small. Go on a 40-day fast. And God will show up in your life. Maybe not tomorrow. But let me put it to you this way. You cannot, you cannot do an act of great faith and have God not respond to it. Impossible. He may not respond the way that you would like him to respond, the way that you would expect him to respond. This happens a lot. But I promise you, this is how it works. You sow in faith and you reap in due season. You sow in faith and you reap in due season. I pray in this room every morning from 6 to 7. Does that mean God does miracles every day for me? No. But a lot of the prayers that I'm sowing in the secret place get answered in seasons of my life. That's how this works. You sow many seeds in faith, well then you're going to reap great harvests in due season. Why is it important to give yourself to prayer? Because if you're not sowing seed, you don't reap anything. That's why prayer is essential. It's not optional. It's not like when you feel like it, you should do it. Oh, that we would have a church that's dependent on God again. Where we need him to show up in our lives. Where we need him to do stuff. We've replaced him with great marketing tactics. With fun fellowship events. We can get people to come to church if we make it fun enough. I hate it. I hate it. I hate the idea that we try and do church without him. Where he's not necessary. We don't need him to show up. Take your church and shove it. That's my response. I don't want your church if God's not there. I don't want your prayer meeting if God's not there. I don't want your Christian event if God's not there. 
I want to be where God is. That's the desire of my heart. And brothers and sisters, I say, oh, that the American church would recover this. That we'd stop doing this thing. Like having, I could have God on the side, give him two hours a week, and I'm good to go. No, you're not good to go. When everything in Scripture says his word is our daily bread, can you eat once a week for two hours? No. Die. And brothers and sisters, kind of loving these things. That's why so many Christians are walking around spiritually dead. I say this with, with longing in my heart. Oh, that the church would be revived so that it would love the place of prayer, that it would love the scriptures again. Then you know what happened? You would see God in your life all the time. You would see him moving in your life all the time. Oh, that we would get back to this place where the church is truly dependent on God. We need, we must have it. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, I know you've had other teachers in the past who had no power, no authority, no true burden from God, no prophetic revelation, no testimonies of miracles. I know you've had those leaders, and I know that some of them now are telling you that what I'm saying is crazy. And I'm telling you, the authority that I have from God is given to me by Jesus himself. He says this to the church in Corinth. He says, when I come to your church, I'm going to test those leaders who are teaching against what I'm saying. And I'm not going to test their words. I'm going to test their power. For the kingdom of God is not found in words, but in power. Oh, that we would have apostles in the church again, leading correctly from a servant heart. Using the authority given to them to serve rather than to be served. Oh, that we would have this again in the church. Say, we shall have it. That's what's happening. We're in a prayer movement that is setting the foundation for the restoration and bride of Christ's anointing. Man, I'm just, some of you are like, okay, now you've totally lost me. Good stuff is happening. There's so much reason to be encouraged. We're in the midst of the greatest movement of all time, and we're setting the foundation for the greatest move of God of all time. The glorious thing is the end time church. It's not going to be the biggest church per se. No, it's going to be the purest church. It's going to be the purest church with leaders who love the Lord truly, not just in word or in outward appearance, but in their heart they've given him devotion in, in acts of obedience that nobody has seen. Right? They've given him devotion in their private lives. They made sacrifices that nobody recognizes, nobody's seen. The leaders have substance and true character and aren't just talk, but have true power. That's where we're getting to, brothers and sisters, and it's my conviction that God is raising up a generation here in Orange County. That's why I'm here to serve you. Oh, that I, I pray that some of you would get so in love with Jesus in this season of your life that you would give yourself to him and his purposes. It's so much better. It's so much better than what the world offers. Man, the world offers garbage. You realize this? A nice house, a nice car, a nice divorce, and kids, they hate you. Boy, that's wonderful. 70 years and then you die. Oh, that you would have a vision. To forsake all these small treasures, these little things, and say, God, I'm living for something so much greater than that. I'm living for a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that endures forever. I'm living for a crown that will not perish. That's what I'm living for. And oh, that we would get that vision. But it's so difficult here in America. Oh my gosh, the temptations. 
Oh, the temptations of America. And you're so rich, you can afford them all. You can just sit there snacking and drinking boba and watching Netflix for the rest of your life. Oh, that you would have a grace for holiness. You've got to get this in you. You've got to get this dream in your heart. Oh, God, make me like Paul. I had this dream when I was in college. I got a revelation. Paul was walking revival. Everywhere he went, there was revival. And I was like, God, I want to be like that. Right? Everywhere I go, I want to unleash revival. Church, get that vision inside your heart. Get that vision. Why? Because God wants to do that too. It's just so hard. <laughs> it's just difficult. But the only way to start down that path is to believe that it's possible. If you never believe that God can do great things in your life and through your life, then you'll never have the faith required to get there. Oh, but if you would believe that it's possible, that God can use you, you can't have dreams that are just like, man, I just hope God helps me pass this test. <laughs> Help me pass this test. That's the extent of my faith. Oh, that's, that's a good start. That's a good start. Oh, but that you would have a dream for more than that. Come on. Turn America back to God, church. Come on. Revive these churches, these fellowships. You can do it yourself. I'm telling you. You, if you, if you are a passionate, faith-filled, wise college student today, you can revive your entire fellowship by yourself. You can do it. Inspire them with your faith. Move them, challenge them with your faith. Show them some miracles, and that will really get them going. And that's possible. That's what we're getting ready for, amen? Holy cow. That was a tangent. That was a long enough tangent to where I'm just going to keep going. Brothers and sisters, if nobody will press in for great authority, then we won't have anyone with great authority here. And I, this is why I've, I've been burdened by this these past couple of weeks for our group. Uh, this sense that this summer really does hold great opportunity. You have to have a sober view of, what, of what's going on. Okay, I'm just going to summarize my point. I was going to take you through so much scripture, but I'm just going to summarize it. God bless us. Okay. Paul is at the center of a great controversy because that's always how it is. Jesus was at the center of a great controversy. Half the nation was in love with him and half the nation hated him. Paul, everywhere he went, he started riots because some people were so moved by his words and came alive and gave their lives to Jesus and received the baptism of the Spirit and their whole life was transformed, their whole eternal life. And then others took offense at his words. What he is saying is wrong and immoral. And they got mad that he was destroying their industry. And they raised up riots everywhere he went. Brothers and sisters, this is how it works. Controversy is always the fruit of God's revelation. Let me say that again. Controversy is always the fruit of God's revelation. Can I tell you what happens for most people? Most people run far away from controversy. Like, oh, it's controversial. 
Why? Because they don't want anyone not to like them. They don't want anyone to get offended, anyone to get hurt, anyone to misunderstand. So they run far away. But can I tell you, show me a great person in Scripture who's uncontroversial. No, if you want to follow God, you must enter into controversy. Why? Because the enemy has an agenda to confuse the Word of God. Right? The very first thing that's spoken to Adam, right? do not eat the fruit of this tree. Satan comes in, did God really say? Right? That's how this works. God speaks something, and the enemy raises up those who would champion the opposite view. Can I tell you? That's how it works. In Paul's day, it was this issue. Can Gentiles be members of the people of God? Super controversial. Every Jewish leader was like, of course not. What it means to be a Jew is to be a member of the people of God. This is how it's been for hundreds of years. You want to follow the God of Israel? You must become an Israelite. We are the people that he has chosen. And you get circumcised and you follow the law of Moses. And Paul is like, no, I've received a revelation. All of that is changing. And all the good Jews are like, dude, come on, man. Not cool, Paul. And Paul's like, no, I promise you this is what he said. I've received this revelation. And he preached it. And he got beaten. He got stoned. He got flogged. He got shipwrecked. He got tortured for the sake of this revelation. And it created controversy everywhere. And now what? Everyone had to wrestle with the controversy. Everyone had to wrestle with the controversy. The ones who would not wrestle with it stayed away and they became irrelevant to their time. Those who didn't wrestle with the controversy of Christ became irrelevant for their time. But those who wrestled with it, some of them received the truth and became great champions of the faith. And some of them became great opponents. And this is the war for every nation. It's great champions of the faith fighting against great opponents. What am I saying, brothers and sisters? 150 years ago, 200 years ago, God started to send out the revelation. Slavery is evil and immoral. And he started to call his people to stand against it. Do not permit it. Do not tolerate it. Have a righteous fury towards it. That movement created great controversy in the church. But by the faith-filled Christians of their time, we ended slavery in America, in all the Western Europe, it was ended, and then we ended it all around the world. Can I tell you the controversy today? It's abortion. This is the controversy today. This is the controversy of our times. 40 million babies every single year, and it's been fine. Nobody's had a big problem with it, really, until God has started to speak to us and say, no, we must stand against abortion. And all that's happening now is that the church is rising up with real conviction. And we're saying, we will not stand for this. These are people, and it's not okay to murder them everywhere. And what's happening? Our nation is now caught in a controversy. We are in a war right now for the future of our nation. It's happening all around us. The question is, will we be relevant to that war? And I understand If you're a young person, especially a young Asian, growing up in America today, well, you have to contend with another group that's telling you the exact opposite of what I'm telling you. They're telling you, no, these are not people. They're telling you that people like me are just trying to oppress women. Give me a break. Oppress women. What a freaking lie. No, it's because I think they're babies. 
That's why. And if they're babies, then we're dealing with massive genocide. Church, this is the hour to become relevant in the plans of God. It's the hour. This is the issue. I'm making it plain. You're having me and guys like me all around the country starting to yell about this issue because I have conviction. I'm telling you, it's not a nice thing I put together. It is something God has spoken to my heart. Not the same as Paul. Not in the flesh. I'm not an apostle. But I will tell you, I'm convinced that this is his heart for the hour. And I, I, I say this warningly. It has the potential to lead us into civil war. This is a sobering word. I think there's a very good chance that we will end up in civil war over this issue. I know that seems unthinkable for us today. But guess what? It didn't seem very likely at the beginning of the slavery movement either, the abolitionist movement either. But these things are ramping up, and what we're seeing is that the nation is splitting over this. The states are splitting over it. There's a war going on over this issue, church. Something like seven, eight states have passed pro-life bills. And then we've seen a counter. Illinois just passed a bill re-legalizing partial birth abortion. Oh, my gosh. You know what partial birth abortion is? It's where the mother delivers the baby, everything but the head. The baby's fully formed. Everything's delivered except the head. And then they jab scissors or a knife or something in the baby's skull to kill it. It is the most horrendous, evil thing ever. And, and they're championing this stuff. Every Christian in Illinois should be shouting about this. But not just Illinois. It should be every Christian in America. This is barbaric. This is evil. And it's about time the church became a holy church. Get rid of the games if they're in the way. There's been another counter push. The media companies now are threatening to ban all activity in Georgia over their heartbeat bill. Do you understand what this is? This is an economic war. We're in economic war right now in the nation. Okay, this is a cold war, and it is ramping up. I say this lovingly. I don't want civil war, but I will fight for this. And I have guns. I'm serious. I don't, I'm not saying let's go to war. I'm saying this is something I'm prepared to give my life for. That's my level of resolve. In the same way as my spiritual ancestors gave their life for the issue of slavery. And we ended it. This is a war that we won. Even though it cost 600,000 American lives. This was a war that we won. And I say that I'm willing to do the same for the sake of abortion. I'm willing to go down with this ship. I don't need to watch your stupid movies. And I say this. Church, get in the fight. If you have conviction on this issue, get in the fight. If you don't have conviction on this issue, I lovingly say this. Wake up. Wake up. Wake up. This is an issue of incredible importance. Almost a million babies a year right now in America are being killed every single year. Even if you just want to take third trimester babies, we're talking six to 10,000 babies a year are killed in the third trimester. You understand what that is? That's about how many people are murdered by guns every year. That's about how many people are killed in car accidents every year. Just third trimester abortions. I've heard so many people say, oh, but you know, the vast majority are done first trimester. 
Well, what are you saying? Are you saying that you believe third trimester abortions are murder? Because if so, we have as many murders in this country of innocent babies as we do people being killed by guns. We have as many babies being murdered by your definition of murder as we have people being killed in car accidents. So where's the outrage? Where's your outrage? Even if you're convinced that it's not murder until the third trimester. But if you believe that it's murder from conception, now we're talking 600,000 to a million babies a year in America alone. Then it is the greatest genocide in the history of the earth. That's why I'm mad. That's why I'm determined. And that's why I don't need to watch Disney's movies if they're going to be banning George over this. If they're going to get into the fight, then I'm, I'm getting into a fight with Disney. I don't, need you, I don't need Marvel. I don't need that. And I say this lovingly. Church, where's your conviction? Seriously. How can the church, I see more Christians talking passionately about Marvel than I see them talking passionately about abortion. And I understand why, because of the confusion that's out there in our culture. I get it. But I say this lovingly. If you don't get in the fight, then you're irrelevant to what's happening in these times. And what's happening in these times is that we have the greatest opportunity. We can end the greatest atrocity in human history. That's the opportunity that we have. But it never comes without controversy. Nothing God does goes on uncontroversial. It's always uncontroversial. It's always praised in future generations. In future generations, they'll look at, back at people like me and be like, good job. But you know most of what's said about me? Pastor Dan is so political. So biblical, you mean. Right. I say this lovingly, church. Let's get conviction on this issue. Let's pray into it. And let's be the light of the nation. Amen. Let's be the light of the nation. Don't waste your summer. No summers can be wasted anymore. We have to grow because we have to prepare. You understand, revival is coming. I don't say this, look, I'm not praying anymore in hopes that there will be a revival. I'm convinced there will be a revival. The question is, will we be prepared for the revival? And the answer right now is no. The church is woefully underprepared. We have to fashion the nets to catch the fish. That means people that are primed and ready to lead mass move of evangelism and discipleship that's going to be necessary. Get ready. Evangelists, get ready. Start training. Train yourself with rejection. Feels good. Pastors, train yourself by loving people in your small groups, especially the ones that drive you crazy, especially the people that are hard to get along with. Oh, don't you know? Those are the ones that are holding your maturity in their hands. Oh, that you would overcome the hindrances to your ability to love. That you would learn how to love people just as they are, right where they're at. This is what the church does. Leaders, rise up. You know, I'm so proud of you guys. You understand, students from our ministry lead campus houses of prayer at almost, you know, the majority of universities in Southern California. Good job. Oh, that we'd, we'd have so much more than that. Oh, that we would have a thriving house of prayer here in Orange County. Thriving. Oh, that our campus houses of prayer would be overflowing with anointing. But it's okay. The greatest glory is when nobody's running with you. 
right? Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. So when you're alone at your prayer meeting, oh my goodness, you are getting all the blessing for yourself. It's the best. But oh, that we would turn into a movement. Brothers and sisters, I say this. This is what's happening in Orange County right now. God is fashioning together a movement. I say there's an alliance of leaders that is arising that has a burning passion for missions and for prayer that's not afraid to venture into places of controversy when the Lord says that it's time to do it. There is a leadership that's arising that's not going to be divided by minor insignificant points of doctrine, but are united in having a word from the Lord for this hour that matches together. God is raising up leaders. Don't get left behind. I'm saying this to some of you. Don't get left behind. Make sure in this season, I say for some of you who are graduating, do you understand the difficulty of entering the workforce? It's a difficult challenge. Don't give in to fear. God will provide you with jobs. Jonathan shared a great testimony. If you have to work at McDonald's, who cares? Work at McDonald's. Get a job, but don't neglect prayer. Get a job, but don't neglect the kingdom. The great temptation is to be so anxious about career that you lose all of your passion and your vision for the kingdom. Don't fall into that trap. Determine, I'm willing to be poor the rest of my life as long as I can follow God wholeheartedly. And you'll be rewarded on that day of judgment. Brothers and sisters, we have great hope because we have faith. We're not living like those who are passing away. And I say this lovingly, if you know that you are one of those who are living like everyone else, come on, come on. Get into the scriptures. Sacrifice this summer. Fast the whole thing. Devote yourself. Turn this room into a house of prayer. I beseech you, church, turn this room into a house of prayer. Oh, they would have 20 Bibles open here. They would have tears falling on the floor with those who are being sanctified in a great way this summer. Oh, I say, don't neglect the call to intimacy because we're so busy with missions, trips. Look, if you're going on a missions trip, prepare by getting intimate with Jesus. Be like, oh, I got to master that skit, so I have no time for prayer. Don't do that. Oh, I've got to fundraise, so I have no time for intimacy. No, you fool. Get intimacy, and then you'll have anointing for your trip. The first mission trip I ever went on to Kazakhstan. I prophesied at a level I had never been at before. Right? I was just a college student, freshman or sophomore, something like that. But I started prophesying over there. People started to be shocked. People were breaking down in tears. I had never prophesied at that level before at that time. It was just the grace of the Lord. And I was like, this is awesome. This is fun. How about some of you surpass it? How about some of you get such an anointing in prophecy? We need some of you. I have some of you in my mind right now. Oh, that you would press in for a greater prophetic anointing than you've ever had before. How do you do it? Practice. Practice, practice, practice. Read everything you can and spend time with God and get revelation from him. That's how you do it. Oh, church, we've got to become separated from a lifestyle of just doing religious activities. Get your own walk with God. Get your own walk. Get it in the place 
to prayer and walk out of obedience with what he puts in your heart. That's true Christianity. I don't know about you, I'm done with official Christianity. I'm done with Christianity that just comes together for official meetings. No, I must have a walk with him where I meet with him personally. I get revelation from him personally, and I act out of obedience because he called me to it. Not because some leader asked me to do something sometime. Sign up for VBS. That's good. But that's secondary. I would love it if you signed up for VBS. But that's nothing compared to you getting intimacy with Jesus. I command you in the name of Jesus this summer, go hard after intimacy with him. That's the command I lay on your heart that I believe is from God. Worship team, come on up here. Right now, I just speak encouragement. Stand up. I just speak encouragement over you. One of, the, one of the great temptations for our culture is we're so hard on ourselves because you compare yourself to the perfect, and in every way that you've short, you're like, I'm, I'm a failure. Yes, you are a failure. Now, thank God Jesus died for you. So stop beating yourself up over every failure in your life. I fail all the time. Every week I fall short of what I could be doing. Lay it down. Stop looking at all the failures in your life and start looking ahead. This one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. What is he taking hold of you for? To change the nation. If not this nation, then some other nation. Go do it. Be a missionary. But if you're here, then change this nation. Shift this nation. Church, the nation is riding on us. I say that seriously. Thank God it's not us alone in our own strength, but it's us that God is using. He, we're a tool in his hand to shift the nation. Amen? What we're going to do right now, do you, under, do you know that today is National Prayer Day for President Donald Trump? Follow some prayer leaders. Come on. I got that thing blasted like 10 times on my Facebook wall. Right. We got to pray for him. Church, hear me. Lay down whatever offense you have with him. Okay? The man lies. Welcome to politics in America. He lies. I don't believe, you know, I, I don't think he's a Christian for sure. Uh, he might be. I don't know. I don't want to judge, you know. Like, he could be. All right? I don't think so. He said he's never repented in his life. How can you be a Christian? You can't be a Christian. Okay? So by his, if he is truthful with that testimony, all right, he's not a Christian. But can I tell you, I really believe God has raised him up as Osiris. All right? I'm not saying he's a believer. I'm not saying he's a hero that everyone should emulate. I'm saying that he's a tool in the hand of God. And oh, that we would pray for him. That God would use him for his glory. I'm telling you, Trump right now is doing more for the kingdom than many Christians. Even if it's as a donkey. If God can use Balaam's donkey for his purpose, he can use Donald Trump. Amen. And guess what? We've had prophetic words that God is going to save him. 
And I've been praying for this since the beginning of his candidacy, that he would be such a model and an example of what God does with people, that his repentance and transformation would be so public that everyone would receive a true witness of the power of God. Come on, that's a glorious, that's a testimony. That's what Kim Clement was basically saying. Now, I don't know for sure if he was talking about Trump. I, I hope, though. A man whispering his name would come to the office, would leave shouting his name. Can we contend right now for Donald Trump? Let's pray for him. Let's pray for the Supreme for the Supreme Court. Let's pray that abortion would be made illegal in America. And look, if you're not there, that's okay. I understand. Just pray for our nation. But if you have faith, let's contend right now. We're doing business with God. Come on, let's lift up our Father, move in the heart of Donald Trump, God.